This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. As this podcast is being released, I'm actually with my family on the last day of our vacation to Roatan in Honduras, where I'm pursuing one of my other pleasures, scuba diving. It's always hard for me to interrupt my training at the height of what should be a busy race season in order to take off for a family holiday. But as I have said many times on the podcast, and as I've learned many times over in my life, triathlon is so very much a team sport. And if we don't have everyone from the team on board, we're doomed to fail in some important way. Sure, we train on our own and we race by ourselves, but the dedication that our spouses or significant others put in for us to be able to follow this passion should never be questioned. And that's to say nothing of our kids, for those of us who have them. There's no doubt, they get something in return, right? We're healthier, better looking, usually in a better mood, and likelier to beat around for longer than if we were sedentary types, but let's face it, our sport of choice is a selfish pursuit and puts a pretty big burden on those around us. All of that is to say that when the subject of a family vacation came up, even though it overlapped with one of my planned races, I wasn't going to say no. There's a fine balance between keeping those on your team happy and keeping yourself fit and ready to perform at the level that you're used to. The calculus for me isn't really that difficult. I bagged this race and I'm comfortable in the knowledge that I have a very good base of fitness and that one week of holiday isn't going to significantly undermine my ability to perform at my usual usual level in a season that is unusually race-heavy in the last half of the year. This is also a chance to remind you that having pursuits outside of triathlon is not necessarily a bad thing either. It isn't uncommon for triathletes to get somewhat isolated, either from doing all their training on their own or from just surrounding themselves with other like-minded triathletes. Having other interests ensure not only that you can broaden your horizons, but it exposes you to a whole new group of people that you can tell all about your exploits in triathlon and try to recruit to the field. Okay, maybe don't do that. Or if you do that, do it only kind of, sort of, and maybe on the DL. However you choose to spend some time with your family or significant other this summer, just be sure that you do. And remind them how important they are to your success in the sport that you love, but not as much as you love them. On the show today, I'm going to take a look at a medical question that you might have thought was pretty well established, and that is the relationship between running surfaces and running injuries. For decades now, we've been told that harder running surfaces are linked to more risk of injury. But there is some new thinking that kind of turns that on its head. Do you need to reconsider where you run? Well, I take a look at that in a short bit. Later, I have a conversation with the one and only Dave Scott. The six-time Ironman world champion is always amazingly insightful and a wealth of information because of his time in the sport and his experience as an athlete and a coach. We covered all kinds of fascinating topics, and that's coming up a bit later. 
Best of all, if you enjoy my conversation with Dave, there is an entire bonus interview with him available right now only to my Patreon subscribers. What's that? You aren't a Patreon subscriber yet? Well, let me tell you, you really should consider becoming one. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can sign on to be a subscriber and receive access to this interview, along with the many others that are available right now. and can be found at my site, which is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks in advance for considering Back in episode 64, I took a look at some research that challenged a long-standing understanding that we as athletes and even healthcare providers have long held, and that is the idea that cold is better than heat as a treatment modality immediately after prolonged intense exercise in order to prevent delayed onset muscle soreness. Now, that was a great example of a long-held belief that has started to come into question because of the results of some well-designed research, and while there hasn't been a wholesale pivot on behalf of athletes, coaches, or even trainers to a new mindset, I wouldn't be surprised if momentum builds and we begin to hear more and more about it. Well, today, I'm going to look at some research that challenges another long-held belief in endurance sport, though in this case, the research is not as well-designed and the results not nearly as compelling. But still, I think it's worthwhile to examine it, because it really does challenge our preconceived notions on this topic, and for that reason alone, we should examine it and see if it's something that we may want to pay attention to. For several decades, there's been a pretty universal acceptance among athletes, coaches, healthcare practitioners, and even equipment manufacturers that runners develop more injuries depending on what surface they run the most miles on. Back in the early 1970s, when running really began to become popular, it wasn't long before an association was made between running volume and running injuries. And soon after that, a link was also made between harder running surfaces and running injuries. Now, this led to the development of cushioned running shoes, which did help to a certain extent, but surprisingly to many, had the unexpected effect of actually increasing running injuries in many runners. The pendulum then swung back towards less cushioning, leading all the way to the minimalist or barefoot running craze of about a decade ago or so, but this too was fraught with significant injury risk and actually led to more problems than the overly cushioned shoes seen before. Well, we're now at a point where shoes have been developed that cover the gamut of cushioning and support, and for the most part, shoes themselves have been implicated less and less as a source of injury amongst runners. Still, underneath the shoe lies the surface that the shoe makes contact with, and there is still very much the notion that it is this variable that has the most impact, and the pun there is very much intended, on the development of running injuries, where all other things such as runner experience and size, running volume and rate of increase of volume are the same. And taken at face value, this makes perfect sense. When a runner lands on their outstretched foot with each stride, the force coming down on the foot and leg is many times the body weight and must be absorbed by the shoe, the muscles, tendons, and ligaments, and the bones of the leg. If the ground is very hard, like concrete, then there is no give and all of the force is absorbed by the leg. Whereas when the ground is softer, like with a dirt path or grassy surface, the impact is softened and less force needs to be taken up by the limb. And there is some evidence to support this. Shin splints, for example, is the common name for an inflammation of the lining of the bone of the lower leg. 
The medical term is tibial periosteitis, and it comes about from repeated impact on harder surfaces, though rapid increases in running volume can also play a role. Recently, though, some exercise scientists, specifically those who look at the biomechanics of the limbs when they are under stress, have started to question this narrative. Back in 1999, Daniel Ferris at the University of California, Berkeley, published a paper in the Journal of Biomechanics in which he showed his research on how runners adapt their stride when transitioning from one type of running surface to another. He showed that when runners went from a softer surface to a harder surface, runners decreased the stiffness in their legs by more than 25%. That is to say, that when running on a softer surface, runners did so with more muscle tension and with a stiffer leg than when they did so on a harder surface. The reason that they did this was quite simple. When running on a soft surface, the runner's centers of gravity tended to slip backwards because of the lack of support from the ground. In order to keep their mass forward, runners unconsciously use their muscle strength to compensate for the softer ground in order to keep their forward lean. On the harder surface, the ground supported their weight better and so the muscle exertion was no longer needed and leg stiffness could de decrease dramatically. Now, Ferris did not look at injuries. His study was not designed to do that. And it was quite some time before his work was recognized as potentially having significance in that regard. But beginning about six years ago, several researchers have picked up on it and designed trials to evaluate if this finding could mean that running on softer surfaces actually leads to more injuries than on harder ones. The rationale for this is simple. Researchers hypothesized that when running on softer surfaces, the significantly stiffer legs needed for balance and propulsion would put higher stresses on all of the structures of the limb than when running on a harder surface. Furthermore, a stiffer limb has much less ability to absorb impact than does a relaxed limb, so all of the impact absorption of the softer surface would be offset by the stiffer leg, also increasing the likelihood of injury. Now, this is a pretty fascinating hypothesis, and if true, would radically change our understanding of running injuries and how to rehabilitate them. Unfortunately, to this point, no good studies have really been done to try and answer this question head-on, and instead, we only have opinion pieces and some peripheral research to inform us on the question. For example, in 2017, a Dutch study looked at risk of injury to runners by measuring the rate of acceleration of the tibia on different kinds of running surfaces when running at the same speed. Now, this is a very hypothetical study because it didn't actually follow runners and measure injury rates. Rather, it built on Ferris's findings by looking at the physics of running on different surfaces and supposes that if acceleration of the shin is higher on a specific surface, then the risk of injury to that bone is also higher. I should point out that this does not address the specific issue that Ferris discovered, but rather just sought to confirm what we already thought about those harder surfaces, that they don't have as much give, and sure enough, that's what was found. When running on a softer surface, the tibia had a lower acceleration measured than when running on a hard one. But again, according to Ferris, that isn't the whole answer. In 2019, a retrospective study of 600 runners surveyed patients at a sports medicine clinic and found that those who reported running on a harder surface reported more injuries in keeping with our preconceived notion and understanding of this problem. But again, this is not an actual experiment and doesn't address Ferris's findings of whether or not leg stiffness had anything to do with the injuries. And so let's look at a couple of different opinion pieces, one by Thomas Lawton from Notre Dame University in 2019, and another by John Davis, published in the same year on the website Runners Connect. 
In both of these, the authors build on the work by Ferris to posit that running surfaces does indeed play a role in the determination of injuries, but that in fact we may have it all wrong. Because, they say, leg stiffness associated with running on softer surfaces instead of hard surfaces are associated with more injuries. Now, neither Lawton or Davis have any prospective or even retrospective research to back up their theories. But the work of Ferris is at the very least compelling and worth considering. Certainly, a study by Waite just this year that was similar to that of the Dutch study that I mentioned earlier, and again measured the acceleration of the shin bone in runners running the same pace on different surfaces, in this case found that on softer surfaces there was indeed a higher acceleration detected, not lower, as was the case in the first study. Now, it's difficult to reconcile these two findings from different studies, and in the end, I'm not entirely sure that it really matters, because, again, tibial acceleration is not injury. It's just a marker for what might cause injury. What we need at this point are well-designed trials to find if, indeed, running on softer surfaces really is worse than we have thought for quite some time now. In the end, I'm afraid that I don't have any answers for you on this topic but I don't want you to come away from this feeling disappointed or frustrated. The point of this exercise is really to serve as a reminder that we should never be closed-minded to different ways of seeing the same problem, and we should be careful not to discount evidence or even suggestions that our accepted way of thinking might in fact not be correct. Now, while in this instance I don't think that we should be willing to say that in fact softer surfaces do in fact lead to more running injuries in direct contradiction to our long-standing belief otherwise, I do think that we should store this somewhere and be ready to accept it as a possibility, especially if further research shows it to be true. For now, I think it's worthwhile, at the very least, considering Ferris's work in this area as instructive, and considering that if you have leg soreness from muscle fatigue, perhaps running on a harder surface would serve you better than a softer one, because of less leg stiffness and muscle use while running. Just food for thought. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com and I'll be sure to give it proper consideration, and maybe you'll hear it answered right here. It's really difficult to know how best to introduce my guest for today's podcast, as he really doesn't need much of an introduction to anyone who has any inkling of the history of our sport. He also has such an incredible resume that to select any highlights off of it would be to pretend that any one or few of his accomplishments are somehow better than the others, when in fact he is best defined by the sum of his efforts over a lengthy career as an athlete, a coach, and a promoter of triathlon around the world. Instead, perhaps it's best to introduce my guest only with his name, since doing so will bring to mind many of the things for my listeners, as it always does for me whenever I hear it. Dave Scott, a name synonymous synonymous with excellence in triathlon since we first heard it back in 1980, and since I am ill-equipped to really do him justice, I'm going to instead defer to a quote from Bob Babbitt, another legend in our sport. Bob said of Dave, he was the Roger Bannister of triathlon, the first person to go under 10 hours, 9 hours, and 8.30 in Kona. Dave Scott's personal triathlon journey paralleled the early history of the Ironman triathlon. 
For me to say that it's an honor to have Dave join me on the podcast today is an understatement of such colossal proportions that I hesitate to do so, but I'm pretty sure that he'll forgive me for being unable to come up with the proper adjectives to describe my pleasure at having him here. Dave, thank you so much for taking some time to join me today on the TriDoc podcast. Thank you, Jeffrey. That was quite an eloquent introduction and rather lengthy, but (laughs) it's a pleasure joining you. Well, uh, I'm going to go all fanboy just a little bit. I'm sure most people do. Uh, you know, I got into the sport. I mean, later I, I got, I came to it in 1990, uh, excuse me, in, in 2000 after the nineties. And, uh, you know, at the time I only knew of Kona and therefore I knew of you, I knew of Mark, I knew of Paula and I didn't know a whole lot else. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's really quite amazing to come kind of full circle and, and be able to chat with you today. It's really, uh, really an honor. Um, I I'd like to chat a little bit, just, you know, talking about some of the stuff during your race career and uh, how it has gone on to inform so many of us. Uh, One of the things I've often thought about is how, you know, triathlon training today is based so much on what you guys did and how you guys kind of developed training and developed racing. How how did you manage it at the time? I mean, how did you know what to do? I I don't know. It's honestly based on what we did, Jeffrey. I, I think that's a a compliment that isn't necessarily justified. You know, if you ask the other contemporaries that I raced against, Mark Allen, Scott Tilley, and, and Scott Molina, uh, and we've been asked this question collectively, you know, what did you do during your training? I, I would have to say that a lot of us were like sheep. You know, you sort of collect together, then you go out for a hard ride, then you do a run together. There was a little bit of choreography, a little bit of thought, and, and I think we learned by... Uh, preparing for races, all different distances, uh, how to prepare well for those races. So it really kind of came down to the last week or two weeks where we seem to be able to dial that in. And I'm speaking for all of them. Uh, myself, I, I have an exercise physiology background. I thought, well, I'm a smart guy, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't really know how to apply it yet to this sport because I was, you know, I was a neophyte in the sport and there wasn't a mentor and there wasn't other coaches and there wasn't science and the history that we have. So I think we fumbled through a lot during the early years. Um, now the athletes have lots of different metrics. They, you know, we have more science. The athletes are doing blood draws routinely. They're looking at muscle acidity. Uh, they're looking at recovery, sleep, all those different variables that we're keenly aware of the heart rate reserve. And, you know, I was aware of the physiological overload and the train intensities and, the, and uh, you know, how your mitochondria is affected. But at the same time, it was a it was a whole new world for all of us. And um, and I'm sure Mark and Scott and Scott would say the same thing that we just sort of did it by the seat of our pants. I, I would say maybe I was a little more structured with my with my training. But, you know, the outcome is that we would race ferociously against each other. And we looked at our training templates and they were quite different. Now, so much of, you know, today's racing, there's a lot of talk about how nutrition is the fourth discipline of triathlon and it's true. Uh, and you know, there's that famous picture from the early Ironman races of, uh, I can't remember who the competitor was sitting at the side of the road with like a, a banquet sort of laid out as he's having his lunch or whatever meal it was. Um, you know, at the time there wasn't as many options for you to have, you know, food that was easy to carry along the way. So how did you guys sort that out? Uh, well, maybe it was good. We didn't have a lot of options. Uh, 
I, I think over the years, uh, I always looked at the science and the science was pretty strong and it, and it was promoted and documented uh, by MDs and PhDs that uh, sugar works and, and refill your glycogen stores. You better eat a lot of carbohydrates. And that was kind of the mantra. We all sort of followed that. Well, we need to eat carbohydrates. What kind of carbohydrates? Uh, it was sort of a mixed bag. And, and my diet early on was really shockingly bad by real health standards. And when I look at it with a microscope, as I have, you know, particularly over the last 15 years um, and said, wow, you know, I, I did okay, despite or in spite of, of the diet that I was taking in. But I did notice throughout the years where, where I was really carbohydrate dominated that I'd have massive fluctuations uh, physically, just not only in re recovery, feeling lethargic. Uh, I, I had many, many weeks where I, I know it affected my brain chemistry as well. And, and I, you know, kind of wrestled with depression over time. And I, and I think it was because the massive amount, not just think, but know, know the science behind it. I had way too many carbohydrates and I would get up in front of a group and, you know, they'd ask me like, oh, Dave Scott knows everything about nutrition. I'd followed mainstream science, but the science was there for where I'm at right now. And that was kind of gravitating away from the massive amount of carbohydrates to low carb, high fat. And, and I, I eat keto nutrition now. So it's very low, very low carb, high fat. And, and I get up in front of groups and I had a, a, a chat in uh, Australia a couple of years ago. And they said, Dave, you were here 25 years ago and you told us to gobble down these carbohydrates. Now you're telling us to eat high, healthy fat and, and minimize carbohydrates. And I said, yeah, I'm glad you're still alive. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I look at it also, uh, and I always have, but it's obviously more prevalent with my age and the years in the sport and still doing the sport and still, a, you know, an avid crazy guy that likes to work out. I look at the health denominator and the aging um, consequences of eating too many carbohydrates and what that does. And there's great documentation on that. So when athletes come to me and I have a 30 year old and says, you know, I can eat any carbohydrate I want, I like bagels and, and, you know, I it, it, in, enjoy package this and that, and I have a Coke uh, in the morning and so on. And I said, well, it's going to, it's going to catch up to you. And I think any athlete that has a sort of a myopic view that, there it's a calorie in calorie out and it's not because we absorb calories differently, whether the carbohydrate, fat or protein, we transport those calories, we store those calories differently. And a lot of times when we look at energy, we use that, we utilize them way differently. Uh, but the long term, the storage part is where people get in trouble. And when they have a downtime or as they go through aging, you know, the biggest denominators that, you know, a lot of the athletes that are eating too many carbohydrates are laying down visceral fat, fat around the organs. And that, and that's a serious problem because it, it can lead to metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes and a whole host of issues. So in a long worded answer, uh, we, we kind of fumbled through the carbohydrate thing. And, and one thing I've sort of been steadfast with everyone, whether the carbohydrate adapted or fat adapted is that sometimes less is better and particularly in racing, 
where they think, okay, I've got an Ironman race or 70.3. Therefore, I've got to tank up in the morning when I wake up. I've got to make sure in T1 I eat something. I've got to eat and drink and so on. And I unravel a lot of GI distress issues that people have. And usually it comes down to, to one thing that they've had too much too soon and the, and the volume is too great. And they never replicate what they do in training. I, you know, I always ask the question, do you do this in training? No, no, no. I, you know, superseded it by a hundred percent. And a lot of your listeners will probably say, yeah, that's me. I have GI distress. I may be eating or drinking too much. Yeah. I've talked a lot about that in the past, about how important it is to practice and race the same way. And if you're trying new things on race day that you haven't attempted in practice, then don't be surprised if race day doesn't go the same as it did in practice. So yeah, emphasizing again, the importance of that with nutrition. I'm curious what your thoughts are about, you know, all of these fancy supplements, you know, I, I always feel like athletes are, are, are trying to be too cute with their nutrition by adding on all of these things. And I'm just curious what your take is on all of the myriad of things that are out there for athletes to take to try and enhance performance. Well, I think there should be a lot of scrutiny on why you're taking it. And the, you know, the very first thing that I recommend with athletes is that, is that they get a complete blood test and, and not a simplified one that we see in the States right now. Um, you can, you can look at different antioxidants. You, you can look at um, inflammatory markers, certainly all the blood blood markers, not just hematocrit and hemoglobin and your iron levels. And right now iron levels aren't even done and uh, transferrin and, and ferritin levels are quite often um, not included. And I, I actually send out a complete sort of blood panel that I put together. And I said, we'll talk to your physician or your health pra practitioner and, and see if they can outsource these so you can get good feedback on, you know, what your metabolic state is right now. So I think with supplements, you, you have to be very careful on what you're prescribing. I, there's not one shoe that fits everyone, but I think there are some great supplements that athletes should look at very, very carefully because the demand that we do exercise wise is much higher than maybe your sedentary mates that are working in an office 10 hours a day. And, you know, one of the things that I, I first tell athletes to look at is have your vitamin D3 levels checked. And vitamin D3 is acts like a hormone. It's in every cell of your body. And, and quite often the D3 levels are have gone down for decades and decades, whether you're outside, you're living in Florida or Texas or California, or even here in Colorado. Uh, and that affects a, a lot of your function, a lot of your functions, endocrine function, heart function, um, muscular function. And so the vitamin D3 is one that a lot of athletes need to take and synergistic with that is also magnesium and kind of across the board, if you have a high sweat rate and you're rolling into spring and summer right now, uh, there's a form of magnesium that I like people to take. It's called threonate, uh, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, and, and it permeates the fat soluble membranes. So people get a benefit of it that, it that affects all the organs, all the tissues, and also for your brain at night. So you kind of split the doses. And vitamin K2 is, is the, uh, the third one that kind of goes together in that package. Uh, there, there's a few others I think people should look at if they're, they have the inability to recover. They find that they go through this malaise or fatigue all the time. They ramp up their train. All of a sudden, they have three or four days where they're tired. And they kind of go on this roller coaster of feeling good and then falling back down again. You always want to nurture your, your mitochondria. So there's, there's several that I like. Astaxanthin. Uh, is an algae and it's it's a very strong. I was taking it for years because I had read about it. And it's actually on the Ironman course 
the company's called BioAstin. It's the most potent antioxidant. And so that, that was a huge one. Omega-3 krill is one uh, that I think people should look at. Glutathione is sort of the master antioxidant. And that goes along with N-acetylcysteine. I can spit all these things out, but <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I think your question, Jeffrey, is we, we just don't take things indiscriminately. And so you come back to the first thing I mentioned is take a look at your blood panel. If you have inflammatory markers or if you're, if you're even in the, the low or high end, depending on, the, on what mark you're looking at, quite often uh, th- there's a term called upper limits, UL. And so these are put put on uh, vitamins and minerals. And for athletes, we need sometimes a little bit more or a little bit less. And, you know, a good example is if your hematocrit or hemoglobin drops 10%, your performance levels can really come down. So that's something that, you know, you should talk to your, your health practitioner and, and possibly be taking a supplement. You don't want to take iron just because you think you need iron because it's toxic. So, you know, I'm not recommending that by any means, but that that is one that can be quite low with endurance athletes and triathletes and um, you know we see athletes that are very very lean very thin uh, they may be not eating uh, nutrient dense foods and and also they're they're hovering on that line of of getting sick and not recovering so i didn't really answer your question i think we no i think you did actually and i and i like i i especially like that message of you know, supplements are shouldn't be considered a generic thing for everybody, but rather that, you know, you should look at what supplements are needed for you individually. And I think that to me is a really important message and one that I am 100% on board with as a physician uh, to, you know, uh, I, I totally agree with you, like mass marketing of supplements makes it seem like everybody needs the same thing. And I would agree with you wholeheartedly that, you know, for the vast majority of people, they don't need, uh, you know, a lot of things, but they might need one thing. And to find out what that one thing is, is really the key. So yeah. I, I think that uh, that really is the most important thing. I have one more question about your racing career, and it's really not just about you, but everybody who raced at that time. We see, um, you know, more and more some of the biggest names in the sport succumbing to injuries and missing big chunks of time. And I can't help but wonder if it isn't related to the fact that there's just so much more racing now. Um, you know, back in your day, I mean, the big thing was, you know, you, you basically raced Kona and uh, there wasn't a lot else going on during the rest of the year. And I wonder if you think as well that, you know, the, the focus on the one race in October versus having to race all year long and pushing the body to, to do races, sometimes two Ironmans in like a six week period. And, you know, is that contributing to what we're seeing in the big names of the sport? Uh, I say yes, yes and no. Uh, I mean, to, to just comment on your comment about, you know, back in the heyday, man, uh, and I will say the big four as we were identified, Melina, Alan, um, Tinley and myself, we did a lot of different races from shorter than Olympic distance, a little bit longer Olympic distance. They were called half Ironman. Some were permutations around that. And then for me, I always did one, but I, two of the years I did Ironman Japan and also Kona and they were relatively close together. Uh, I, I don't recommend that at all. You know, I found uh, anecdotally and historically that the women 
uh, typically have recovered better when they have these races that are fairly close, particularly Ironman races. But, you know, I like to have about a 13 to 15 week window between two Ironman races. And that's what I recommend if people are looking at a, an early spring race or a midsummer, and they've got a fall one that they better have a, a, enough spread in there so that they can rebound. So they don't develop these, you know, niggling injuries and they're not really recovered and they're kind of on the cusp of, you know, developing some injury that seems to come back and bite them all the time. You know, one of the, one of the issues that Ironman has had is that they're, they, and all the athletes are chasing points. So therefore they have to garner these points in the races so that they qualify, particularly for Ironman world championships um, in Kona. And if they don't, if they're not in the top 50 men and women, then, you know, and they're 51, they didn't do enough races, but they're also saying, Hmm, you know, one more race and I, I think I'm going to be over the edge. So I, I think, you know, you're right on your comment that a lot of the athletes are over racing typically in the early part of the year. And, it, and I, I think it could, it can be weather related. It can be the darkness of the days. The athletes don't put in the volume. And I think one of the, one of the tendencies in our sport is that more is better. And this is a real problem. And uh, people think that there, and it kind of comes back to your supplement question. If I put in more time, my engine aerobically is going to be better. My capillary density, my oxidative enzymes, my red blood cells are all going to improve. Well, they don't. And, and if you look at endurance athletes over time and, you know, the, the mantra in this sport is you better do a long run and a long bike or a long brick on the weekend year round. And I totally disagree with that. And I've disagreed with it my entire career. And I didn't do that. And I, and I think your question kind of comes back to, are we doing too much when we're too fit? So in the early part of the year, they can get away with it because the tempo is generally less. They may not be doing it back to back. They're doing it off road on the, on the runs. But then as the season gets further along, we get into the spring and summer and the weather is better. There's always someone in the group, and you certainly see this with, with the males, someone's ready to race. And if there's a bunch of egos lined up and they're gonna they're gonna ride 70 miles, but let's go 90 and let's do it all hard, or let's run eight, but we're gonna run 12, that happens a lot. And so I I, I kind of like to look at the science. You look at mitochondria, that happens with long distance train over and over again, a 10 year old's mitochondria is a round, perfect little bubble. That's very functional. It's efficient. The density of it increases. And then when athletes start doing these long days over and over again, it becomes pitted, becomes dysfunctional. So I, you know, I'm, I'm always worried about athletes doing too much. And, and I, when I was coaching and fortunately coaching uh, and advising Craig Alexander and coaching Chrissy Wellington, and I had Julie Dibbins and a few other athletes that were very, very good when, when I got them, I was always trying to ratchet them back a little bit so that they were fresh for their big races. And in watching Kona over the years, I see a lot of the athletes that are battered going into that race, they're not able to race at their potential that you may see in April, May, June, July, but come October, they're, they're beaten. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's uh, it's, but I also understand, you know, with uh, many more pros out there and, and, you know, that's their living, I, I see the pressure. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting conundrum. Uh, I, I'd like to transition now to some of the stuff that, you know, since your racing career has ended and I, I, 
was so appreciative of your conversation with Helen Murray on uh, her uh, podcast when you talked about uh, some of the mental health issues that you experienced uh, as being a professional and then afterwards. Um, I- I'm particularly interested in how as such a high achieving professional triathlete, um, someone who lives for it, um, and, and we see this in all professional sports, really, when, when the transition from, you know, moving from that climate or environment where that's everything, and now all of a sudden you're not a professional, you know, athlete anymore. What does that do to your mental state? And, and how do you sort of fill that time? How do you fill that drive? How do you recover from that and make it a healthy state for you? Uh, darn good question. I mean, I think it, you know, stems back to my athletic years where you're kind of on this teeter totter or roller roller coaster and you're silent about the low points that everyone has, you know, can I pick myself up? Do I need to get out and train today? Yes, I do. You know, I don't feel as good on five pounds, 10 pounds overweight or whatever that may be. Uh, And you start, your confidence starts eroding and your self-esteem and self-worth starts coming down because when you have the, the notoriety or the accolades that, oh, you're really amazing, you're an incredible athlete, and, this, and that's what you hear, but at the same time, you're not processing, like, no, I'm just a regular guy. And, and I never, when I meet someone, I don't ask them, you know, did you go to Harvard or did you go to your local junior college and what do you do? You know, I want to know them as a person. I don't really care initially what their profession is and how accomplished they are. But I think athletes are, are always put in entertainers are put on this pedestal that's, that's quite false. And for, for me, I, I would kind of hide or run from it because I didn't feel it was really true. Uh, you know, I had weaknesses and moments where I just, you know, couldn't rally myself and I would rely on a, a couple of good mates of mine that, you know, these guys were, were always there, pillars in my family, like, you know, sort of bolstering me back up, like, you know, just go out and exercise, Dave, that makes you feel good. It wasn't about winning the next Ironman. It was just go exercise because I know you'll feel better. And, you know, that's a very, very common denominator with all of us. We like it because, you know, we get this magical morphine-like endorphin that just streams through us and we say, okay, now I can accomplish things. But I had periods many, many times when I was racing where I couldn't get out of this hole, this mental hole. And that, that, you know, wore me down. I mean, it wore me down. I I saw uh, psychologists. I saw a couple of psychiatrists. Uh, several of the psychiatrists rec- recommended some sort of medication so I wouldn't feel like I was really down. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. It probably would have helped. Uh, it was almost like denial. Well, I can't be that bad. So therefore I'm not going to take that. And, and I always seem to be able to plant that seed again with, with really close help from friends and family to say, okay, I can, I can come back. Getting to your question managing that throughout my career. Now my career was over and I realized, you know, I'm not going to toe the line in Kona anymore. Let's leave it for those young stallions. And, and you sort of lose your mojo and, and your motivation and all the above. And, and, you know, people can talk about age is just a number. Well, it comes back to catch you a little bit. Do you lose a little bit of your mobility, your lean muscle mass, you know, nutritionally, are you on your, on it? And are you hungry for it? Are you hungry to race? So I like a lot of athletes, I, you know, I kind of lost that hunger, 
but I still have this crazy innate competitiveness. Like when I'm out on my bike or in the pool, I just swam just half hour ago. And, uh, you know, it's still there. It's still with me to draw on that, to segue to a professional life within the sport is where I've been for quite a while. And I didn't want to change occupations. I didn't really feel like maybe I had the skill set, but I still was very passionate about the sport. I like sharing what, what is my uh, real backbone of interest is the science, the exercise, putting the puzzle together. You know, I love trying to figure out people's training programs, where they might've gone wrong or their nutrition or their strength training or their lack of mobility or their thoracic spine or whatever it may be. To me, that is really fascinating and I still love it. And I also, that teaching part of, of me has always been sort of in my DNA and that has never left, but to find that avenue where I can really say, okay, this is what I want to do. You know, I don't, I don't know if I've found that yet, uh, Jeffrey. I've, uh, for, for example, I, I still coach a group and I, we started in April of 2020. COVID was in place. We just started at the club that I, that I was teaching and I work out myself and we had a few people in the pool, but it was really my core group. And then it's kind of slowly grown. And with all the you know limitations that we have with COVID, I still just, I never lose the desire to look at that woman swimming over there and thinking, gee, I, her freestyle, her head position, her cross over their hand, her fingers, or, you know, her feet, her, you know, I, I never lose the desire to help, to fix, to, to work with them. And so I think I'll probably <laughs> go to my grave, you know, still working on technique in some form with people. So I'm still passionate about that, even though it doesn't really reap the financial rewards. But, but it sounds as if, you know, you, you were there to help bring this sport into the limelight. And then when you stepped away from the limelight, the sport was there for you to help you adjust and, and really, you know, in a way, give you an outlet to continue being you and, 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 you know, stave off those demons, uh, you know, from, you know, your past with, you know, depression and, and other mental health issues, which is fantastic because you actually were involved in laying the foundation for what ended up being almost therapeutic for you afterwards, which I think is a remarkable and a, a really wonderful story. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a yellow brick road the whole way, but it, oh, of course know, not. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of bumps in it, but again, I use the word passionate I was a passionate athlete when I was enjoying I was, uh, and simultaneously while I was doing that, I was always teaching or coaching. Uh, I, I never really get tired of, uh, of quite, I like talking about politics and everything and religion and everything else. But when, you know, athletes come up to me and they say, Hey Dave, you know, I've got this hamstring thing going on, but, you know, right away. I'm just, I'm intrigued. I don't say, Hey, don't bother me. Uh, let's, let's figure this out. Yeah. Uh, I want to finish this segment. And uh, for my listeners, if you're enjoying this, and I'm sure you are, uh, Dave is going to join me for an, a bonus segment, which will be available to all my Patreon subscribers. Uh, but I want to finish this segment with one last question. And that is, you know, you've been involved since the 80s. You've seen the sport grow. You've seen so many different changes. I recently uh, spoke with Dan Emfield and asked him this question. So I'm going to ask you as well. What changes have you seen in the sport over the, all those decades? And what are the things that you, you know, have appreciated and what are the things that 
maybe you love a little bit less? Ooh, big question. I mean, Dan and I are about the same age. Uh, and Dan's been around a long time. <laughs> of course, I don't yeah. quite, quite well. I mean, he, and he's kind of on the forefront. The technology, and obviously it's a simple thing to talk about is, you know, the bikes that I rode. And, and I used to have my 1980 bike here. I'm in my office and I had it hanging up here and people would walk in. It's in the Boulder Museum right now. I'm going to get it back because it's really the only bike that I've kept. That was the first Ironman I did. I went on that bike and people were just absolutely dumbfounded. Like you actually raced on that thing because <laughs> it, you know, it looks like a wounded uh, Buffalo and, you know, I rode it and I said, yeah, it was, it, you know, the state of the art at, at that time. And, you know, you look at the wheels and the rims and the tubing and the brakes and everything. And it, oh, it's rudimentary. And even all the way up through the, years that I raised, the technology, obviously, and everyone could say this is not very insightful, that, you know, the bikes are unbelievable. I got a fast bike right now, and it's totally different than what I raced on. <laughs> so, you know, I look at the, I look at the cycling times that the men and women are doing, it doesn't matter what distance, they are outrageous, they are so darn fast. And, you know, you can look at the, the aerodynamics and the tubing and da, 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 the engine on top, I feel is still the same. We worked as hard, if not harder than the, than the best athletes. We just didn't have equipment. So to answer the first part, you know, that change is, is gigantic in the sport. You kind of alluded to nutrition. I think a lot of the athletes haven't figured it out. And I, and I also feel as though there's a, there's still a lag um, from the years that I started and even during my water polo and swimming career in, in college and segueing to triathlon, I've always been a big advocate of mobility, stretching and, and strength training. I've always done it. And I've been a big advocate of some of the stuff that I've done over the years. I, I look back, I think, wow, why, how, how could I tell them to do that? So the evolution of that has changed. And the science on that is amazing. Periodization can be right on. And it needs to be very specific for each athlete you know, and the top athletes. I think are still missing it. And, and I mentioned this uh, in, in different um, chats, Jeffrey, with what do you think of Jan Ferdano? Phenomenal, incredible. Alistair Brownlee, amazing. You know, they are they are out of this world and their times and their abilities are, are crazy fast. But I look at Jan Ferdano, he had a great time, holds the holds a record in Kona. He's nowhere close to his potential on the marathon. And, and if he was sitting on this podcast, I'd say, Jan, you know, you should be running 231 or 232 coming off the bike in Kona. And, and he's run 243, I think, 244. He, he, not even close to what his half is. So I, I think there's still a, a disconnect with the athletes over time. I'm not really answering your question exactly, but uh, I think a lot of the athletes would really benefit by better nutrition. They better They would benefit by a real strategic uh, mobility stretch, stretching and strength program. And we would see times that would just be out of this world. Cause I, I think looking back 15 years, where can we go with Ironman racing or half Ironman racing? And we're, you know, we're seeing Ironman men athletes that are riding close to, you know, four hours on the bike, 27, 28 miles an hour for 180 K 112 miles. And we're seeing women that are riding 430. I mean, 4.30 was sort of the sacred time that the men, myself, we were looking at, like, boy, could we ride 25 miles an hour? That's 4.36 in the Ironman. That, that, that was really, really ex not an untouchable time, but that was a goal. Now they're riding 30 minutes faster.
Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's really remarkable to see the march of uh, you know those times downwards. I, I'm curious if there's any. Thing that you know, any of the changes over the decades that you maybe look at with maybe less fondness. Is there anything that's happened in the sport that you kind of go, huh, we could maybe live without that? Uh, you know, it's still a selective sport. It's for the elite. It's very expensive. I, I don't think we're really bringing uh, new kids. We're not bringing minorities into the sport like we should. And we, I, I saw this earlier on when I traveled, particularly to Europe or uh, Asia, where they would have club programs, and the club programs, the Aussies did very well. They'd bring the kids in, they'd have these short little events. We have such a problem with liability in in this country that everything has to have a caveat. Like, boy, we can't do this because you know someone's going to sue us, and it's really unfortunate. And so the prices have escalated to, to really limiting the calling that we. I would like to see with, you know, can we bring in kids? Can we bring in minorities? Can we bring in people that have socioeconomic standards that are well below the demographics of our sport? And we're not doing that at all. Uh, We're missing it. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Uh, Several other people have commented on that, uh, that I've spoken to in the past, and I couldn't agree more. Well, Dave, I, I... just can't even thank you enough for joining me today. This was a really, really fascinating conversation. And uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure to uh, chat about a wide breadth of topics. And uh, again, for my Patreon subscribers, Dave and I are going to chat a little bit more. So uh, please do head over to my Patreon site at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Become a subscriber and you'll have access to that. For now, Dave, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was really fun. Thank you, Jeffrey. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my amazing intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Or do you have feedback about anything discussed today? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I would always love to hear from you, and I promise a response. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train healthy. <laughs>